voice on a rainy day with loss of sleep, so you must have something to sing about. I'll ask you to turn to Romans chapter 4 this morning. I will confess I'm a little bit guilted by the speed with which we have come through the third chapter. As we have spoken of verses 21 to 26 being the most important paragraph ever written. Uh, but yet, as I said, we want to keep, keep things moving, keep learning and looking at the forest and granting or grasping the whole picture and not get too bogged down in particular details. One thing I worried about in chapter 3 is if we started to get into those minute details, word by word as it were, that we would have spent a very, very long time there. But as I said, we want to just carry the argument along. So we do come today to Romans chapter 4. I want to begin in the opening verse, and for our reading today, we'll read down through the end of verse 10. So Romans 4 and verse 1. What shall we say then that Abraham our father is pertaining to the flesh hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only, or upon the un, or the uncircumcision also? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. We'll end reading in verse 10. In some ways, we're breaking off where Paul continues a thought. But I want to end just with that phrase as to when Abraham experienced his justification. So let's bow our heads together. Ask the Lord to help us as we consider his word today. Heavenly Father, we've lifted up in song the words taken from this psalm that the apostle so fully quotes here. Blessed is the man to whom you do not impute sin. We come today marveling at that glorious gospel message, marveling at the experience of forgiveness, and we pray that you will again take the living word and write it on our hearts, minister to each of us in our different points of need, and we pray that you will bless the word Perhaps even if there is one today here that is yet outside of Christ, bless it savingly to such a heart and for your own people that we might be edified and grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, as we come to chapter 4 in Romans, we reach the point where Paul begins almost, we could say, the third stage of his argument. His gospel is that sinners are justified by faith in Christ 
apart from their own works. He's put it in a sentence, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, his thesis. And he's put it in a paragraph, chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, that we saw two weeks ago. And now he enters into that stage where he'll flesh this truth out with arguments. And as we've already seen, and we will see in striking ways going forward, Paul anticipates objections to his teaching, and he deals with them along the way. And so it is apparent here that as Paul enters chapter 4, he hears, as it were again, the objection of a Jewish detractor once again. I've made the comment more than once going along the way that I'd never really pictured it in my mind in this way, but I just think about Paul writing the Romans and how many cities he'd been in and gone first into the synagogues and at the reading of the Old Testament scriptures preached Christ to the people that were gathered there and then what conversations he must have had along the way and out in the lobbies, as it were, of those synagogues. These are objections he's no doubt heard before. He knows they are coming, and so he anticipates them and begins to deal with them. So I say Paul here is probably hearing the objection of this Jewish detractor saying something like, well, this is something new. What he has said in that paragraph, if it is sunk in, if if something of that word freely, without a cause, has sunk into that unbelieving Jewish ear, He's going to speak up to that. He's going to bring up something with regard to his heritage. He's going to bring something up with regard to his, can we say, misunderstanding, his reinterpretation of the Old Testament Scriptures. We speak and read in the New Testament of those that were in unbelief having their eyes blinded still at the reading of the Old Testament Scriptures. Christ's rebuke of the Jews and the religious leaders of his day saying, if you would have understood and believed Moses, you would have believed me. Paul's going to deal with this one that thinks this doctrine of free justification, of justification by faith alone, that this is something new. It isn't something new. And Paul has from his very first breath in the book of Romans been dealing with that particular truth. What did he say in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, when he introduced himself as the Apostle Paul, separated into the gospel of God, which he had promised by his forefathers, in, which he had promised in the scriptures, or afore rather, by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures? And then, of course, we come to chapter 3 and verse 21, that paragraph we've so highlighted and continue to marvel in. That this gospel is being witnessed by the law and the prophets. This gospel isn't something new, as the Jewish objector would say. This is what the Old Testament has consistently said. And so now at this point, Paul presses on from brief affirmations, if you will. And he begins to argue his points from the Old Testament scriptures themselves. Here in chapter 4, he puts forward two giants from Israel's history, Abraham and David. We've read here the opening ten verses of the chapter. And what I want to do today, I'm going to announce, I guess, for more than the first time in our studies in Romans, uh, something of a homiletical deviation that I want to do today. 
The points that I want to put before you just here in a moment are not going to be watertight. They're drawn from the chapter itself, but I just want to put three words before you here at the outset of our message and Lord willing at the close of our message again to try and fix the truths contained in these verses in our hearts and in our minds. And so the words that I want to put before you today are these. Uncircumcised, ungodly, and uncondemned. Uncircumcised, ungodly, and uncondemned. As I said, those aren't so much the points of the message because we're going to drift along as we look at what Paul is saying here. But those three words, I think, will help us to take something away to hold on to what Paul has put before us. So as we enter into the chapter, again, Paul dealing with potential objections, he utters that question in the opening of chapter 4. What shall we say then that Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh hath found? This truth about free justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ, this redemption through His blood, this propitiation, this removal of wrath, and this vindication of God by being just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. Well, if all this is true, well, then what about Abraham? You can almost hear him say, wasn't Abraham chosen by God because he was different than his neighbors? Wasn't Abraham chosen by God because he was somehow better than them? Paul says, what has Abraham found? Now, I have to pause a little bit for some discussion. Their scholars wrestle back and forth when we read in verse 1, What should we say then that Abraham, our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? Where, where do the commas go? You can look at it from one standpoint and say, What should we say then that Abraham, maybe put the comma there, our father pertaining to the flesh? Has found. That would put Abraham as the father of the Jewish nation. He's the father with regard to their fleshly genealogy. That's entirely true. We could also put it, and perhaps this is why the commas are where they are in our version. What should we say then that Abraham, our father, comma, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? You could take flesh there, not in the sense of the Jews' genealogy, as it were. But you could take flesh in the sense of Abraham's religious efforts. And many suggest, and I think perhaps this is the way we should understand it, although it's one of those, they're both true and we don't have to choose as it were. But what has Paul said of religious flesh in other places? If you turn just for a moment over to Philippians chapter 3. I think there's a great sense in which we can understand flesh in the way Paul uses it here as we read back looking at Abraham's experience. Philippians 3, and if we begin begin reading here uh, in verse 4. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, an Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. 
Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. And notice how he has his gospel. And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Perhaps it indeed is in this sense that Paul draws attention to Abraham and asks, what pertaining to the flesh has he found? Well, the Jew would say, well, Abraham's the father of Israel. Abraham's the father of the circumcision, etc., etc. Well, Paul says, I have all these things. I have them more than many of you do. I count it all but dung that I may win Christ. And so he continues on. For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory. What has Paul said of the gospel? What's he said of the truth of justification that he's bringing? Boasting is excluded. The only glory we have is in the cross of Christ, not in self. Paul here begins to establish this with regard to Abraham. I mean, if the Jews want to glory in what they have in their heritage, what about Abraham, who was the originator, if you will, of that heritage? Well, Paul doesn't just bring in hypotheticals. Look at verse 3, and this is where we need to always be. (laughs) For what saith the Scripture? You want to glory in Abraham? You want to glory in your your history, your heritage? Well, what says the Scripture? What does the Old Testament story say? You that are suggesting that I'm bringing something new. I'm bringing something different. What saith the Scripture? The quotation here of Genesis 15, 6. Interesting. Genesis is kind of like the the earliest book of the Bible. Paul goes all the way back to the beginning. What does it say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Justification by faith alone. That's what the Old Testament says about Abraham. Now I want to pause here for a moment because if you look in the verse we've just read, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. If you read further down, when it speaks about uh, his faith being counted unto him for righteousness. There's a point that we've argued already. We're going to highlight more as we come into chapter 5. Faith isn't our righteousness. Faith is the instrument by which we embrace Christ's righteousness, which saves us. And that's vital to our understanding of the gospel. But it says here, his faith is counted unto him for righteousness. Can I just give you, cut to the chase and get to the answer, and we'll flesh it out more in chapter 5. There are occasions in Scripture, particularly these here in Romans 4 we're mentioning, where as faith is mentioned, it includes its object. It's faith in Christ. 
It's faith, as we've seen, that has its peculiar quality that it abandons hope in self and places its trust and hope in another, namely in Christ. So it's faith here that's including its object. And then of course, the dispensationalists want to come in and argue with us here, well, what was the object of Abraham's faith? I'm tempted to quote you a little paragraph from Charles Ryrie while he's trying to salvage the system in the middle of the last century. And he does a lot of theological dissecting and faith ultimately comes down to, or the object of faith is the particular revelation God was pleased to give at the time, which then you can remove anything you want from that. What was, who was the object of Abraham's faith? As we've seen all throughout, beginning in Genesis 3, the promised seed, that promised second man, Abraham is aware of this truth. The thing that is so remarkable with regard to Abraham and the progressive revelation and the history of redemption is the place he's going to play in that chain of events that God has promised to fulfill. You'll read here in Romans, you see it fleshed out in Galatians, the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not by the law, it was through faith. The promise was that in Abraham all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That's an interesting thing for a Jew that's wanting to glory in his heritage to think about. How is it that Abraham, this father of the Jewish nation, is going to be a blessing to all the nations of the world? It's because of his seed. The promised Savior is going to come. The New Testament even speaks very explicitly later. It preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And so here, Paul goes back and says, What does the Scripture say? How is Abraham justified? Is he justified because of his own heritage? You're boasting in being Abraham's seed and as Christ's detractor said, we're Abraham's seed and we're never in bondage to any man. Okay, whose seed was Abraham of? He was living in a land of apostates who had turned away from truth. He's living in a land of those that embraced idolatry. What heritage is he resting on? No, Abraham here. And if we see the last portion of the verses we read, and this is why I said these Thoughts are not watertight in the compartmental sense. This faith that the Scripture says was the instrument of His justification, not works. When did it come to Him? When was this imputation reckoned in the life of Abraham? After He was circumcised? Decades after the call of God to leave Ur of the Chaldees? Was it reckoned to him when he was in uncircumcision? Was this an uncircumcised, justified man? And Paul says plainly, not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. And then he gives an illustration from life that is plain and easy to grasp. Verse 5. 
or verse 4 rather, Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. If Abraham had been justified by works, he would have something to glory in. And then Paul just adds that phrase, but not before God. And we understand God's holy law. We understand that as a reflection of His holy and righteous character. We understand ourselves as born in iniquity, sinners from the womb, incapable of meriting righteousness by that standard. That's Abraham, like the rest of us. And here, he says, To him that works is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. When you work and you put in your 40 hours or if you're self-employed, your 80 hours or whatever, at the end of that week, you get the paycheck. You're such a gracious man. No. You earned that. It's, it's a reward that is reckoned based upon labor. Based upon a debt. Your employer is indebted to you for the work that you provided. Abraham didn't receive justification on those terms. He received it on gracious terms. And so here, Abraham, again, not justified by works, but justified by faith. In the Old Testament giving testimony, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Abraham is a prime example of those justified by faith. And for this objector that would want to say Paul is introducing something new, he finds no support for his objection in the Old Testament record of Abraham. But I want to pause and we look here in verse 5. Because there's a statement here, and this is where I've pulled and singled out our second of the three terms. We read, but to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Again here, important truth will flesh out in chapter 5, but faith including its object. Here this is reckoned for righteousness. But I want you to notice the phrase, To him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly. That phrase, Paul's use of that phrase, he at this point has gone further than he has yet gone in this explanation of the gospel. He's talked about justification by faith alone. He's talked about our sinfulness. He's talked about our inability to fulfill the law. We're not saved on legal terms. But to come out so bluntly and say God justifies the ungodly. That should raise an eyebrow. But yet that's the gospel. Paul is going to have to deal with a serious objection when he finishes fleshing out the teaching in Romans 5 about imputation. 
about justification having nothing to do with our own righteousness. With our own efforts. Can we add our own insufficient efforts to fulfill the law? That we're justified entirely on the righteousness of someone else that is reckoned to our account. It's interesting, Paul uses the word for justification here or for reckoning multiple times, but it's translated in different ways. It's translated counted. It's translated reckoned. But here, this reward is now reckoned of grace because God justifies the ungodly. False religion looks at that and says, wait a minute, that can never be. If you, if you teach that, then men are going to just sin and keep sinning. Lifestyle doesn't matter. You, you sin more that grace may abound. These further objections we're already aware he'll deal with down the line. But I say here he's put the, stri- the stark and striking phrase in front of us. God justifies the ungodly. It was when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. The work of Christ for us, the acceptance of our persons based on that work, God justifying us by imputed righteousness has nothing to do with our own godliness whatsoever. God justifies the ungodly. This is why the Romanists were so antagonistic to the teaching of the Reformers. One of the many reasons. They said, well, this teaching is going to promote antinomianism. It's going to promote ungodly living. God can't justify the ungodly. We have to have... Well, then again, they just expose their gospel. We have to have some godliness that God looks at and counts as good enough and brings us to Himself. And you look even at the teaching of baptismal regeneration. Original sin washed away. Now you're in a godly state. God will work in His people. He will work godliness in His people. But their justification is not based upon that at all. Rome's perennial error is the confusion in the sense of that word that we don't use very often. We say confused meaning you can't get your head straight. You're... you're, you're not thinking right. No, the bringing things together that belong apart. The confusion of sanctification, which is God's work in us, changing our lives, conforming us more to the image of Christ, making us less like the world, less engaged in the pursuit of sinful activities. That's work in us. But that all is a result. That's all subsequent to, that's all based upon a finished work that He does for us when He justifies us freely, without a cause, by His grace, 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. But I say Paul comes here so strikingly to just put it bluntly. God justifies the ungodly. We come to terms with that. There's a humbling truth. There's something that drives the nail home. Something that forces us to wrestle with, come to an understanding of, and affirm the doctrine of free justification. I love the way Hart puts it in his hymn. Let not conscience make you linger, nor fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. And this he gives you. Just grace, grace through that hymn. But here, this imagined righteousness. That we've got to produce something. That we've got to move out of our ungodly state so that God can finally deal with us differently. Well, hard had it right again. If you tarry till you're better, You'll never come at all. If you're waiting for a worthiness to emerge within yourself to be a result of your own righteousness, then you'll never come to Christ. You'll seek to boast in something you've accomplished. You'll ask God to look at you instead of look at Jesus. Friends, what will you ask God to look at when your name is called, when the books are opened in the day of judgment, you really want to ask Him to look at you? Or do you want to ask Him to look at Christ and say, my hope of justification isn't a God that justifies the ungodly. Because if you look at me, that's all you'll see. Ungodliness. You are a God who said He does justify the ungodly. How can He do it? How can it be just? And the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. How can He be faithful to His own standard, to His own law? Well, there's the Gospel. And that's what Paul is going to... He's already stated in that powerful paragraph. And that's what he's going to just flesh out argument by argument the rest of his way through the book. But I say here, Paul puts a statement before us that goes deeper, is more blunt than anything he said so far. The one that believeth on him that justifies the ungodly. Wrestle with that truth, wrestle with that understanding of the gospel. Wrestle with the bluntness of how it's put. Wrestle even with the objections that it raises. Paul's going to wrestle with them. Chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7. But there's the gospel. And that's why we sing, Great God of wonders, all thy ways, but thy, the wonders of your grace above your other wonders shine. He justifies the ungodly.
He comes then to bolster his case. Don't just look at what set the scriptures with regard to Abraham. Imputed righteousness by faith alone. What about another hero? What about David? Verse 6, even as David also describes the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, and then he just quotes the opening verses of Psalm 32. I know we've sung that psalm a couple times already in our studies in Romans. We'll probably sing it some more. The version A of that has more of the psalm paraphrased and put before us. But what a psalm it is. If you understand the context of the psalm, it's really the companion psalm to Psalm 51, which is David's great prayer of confession with regard to his awful fall and his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. But in Psalm 32, it's, it's in a season later than that initial outburst of confession and penitence over his sin. It's a reflection on that season in which he, he felt so alienated And he he did something that was uncharacteristic of David. I remember studying the life of David and preaching on it very early on in the ministry. And we've looked at him more over the years in our study in Psalms and prayer meetings recently. But if you ask me to put down a theme for the life of David, all the ups, the downs, I mean the the, the great victory with Goliath, him being the, the king that solidified the nation, David was a man whose view of God was right. All the ups and downs of his circumstances, but his view of God was right. And friends, that's something that's not always easy for us. Because even as believers, the devil comes and whispers in our ear lies about our Heavenly Father. He lies to us if we're outside of Christ and tells us we're doing okay. You don't need that gospel. You're fine. You're even better than a lot of people. Then we come to Christ. We repent of our sins and believe. And then He comes and whispers, how could God take somebody like you? The devil wants us to have wrong views of God whatever place we are in life. David, what an example of a man who had right views of God. But in this psalm, what is stated, if you will, positively with regard to Abraham and his example from the Old Testament Scriptures, the imputation of righteousness by faith alone, he states it now from the other side, negatively from David. The non-imputation of sin. That which really does belong to us isn't counted as belonging to us. And if you go to the psalm, we'll not take time to turn it up today, but Paul goes explicitly through those opening verses. And there's a threefold reference to our sin. Our transgressions that are forgiven, our sins are covered, our sins are not imputed probably mentioned this when we did our study of the Psalms and prayer meetings, but I'll never forget Sinclair Ferguson's comments on that Psalm where he said that David 
literally ransacks the Old Testament vocabulary with regard to sin. He uses three synonyms, the different perspectives with regard to sin, and then he brings along God's remedy to each of them. He says, blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven. The word to forgive here, the Old Testament word, has the idea of something that's carried away. The New Testament idea has the, uh, or the New Testament word has the idea of something of release from something. And so when he says, firstly, our transgression is forgiven, our sins are removed from us. And then he says, secondly, our sins are covered. And this redemptive term, here is sin removed. When you think of this, removed from God's memory. I will remember against them their sins and their iniquities no more. What a marvel. When Satan, the accuser of the brethren, would come and bring charges just Charges against us for our ungodliness. We that are justified by believing in Jesus. All those charges, all those transgressions, God says, I see none. You know, there's an interesting phrase. If you look in the Old Testament story of Balaam, Balak had hired Balaam, the Mesopotamian prophet of some notoriety, and had given him much money and promised to promote him to great esteem or even higher esteem. Balaam was happy enough to come along, apparently reluctantly, and we know the story. But of course, as it push came to shove, as it were, the Spirit of God intervened. And remarkable truth, even at some point some Christological statements from the mouth of this apostate Balaam. But one phrase that he says I think is so powerful with regard to justification. As he has been called upon to curse Israel. To pronounce that condemnation over them. And he can't. He says this, God hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob. Well, you read the story. Jacob personally, and the whole history of the nation from Israel, Jacob's time until that day, and their murmurings in the very wilderness in which they're encamped, God's own chastenings and dealings with them because of that sin. And yet in that ultimate sense, in that great gospel picture, He's not beheld iniquity in Jacob. He hasn't imputed sin to us. How can it be? sin is removed from us, if sin is removed from God's memory, and then he says, blessed is the man to whom the Lord imputeth not sin. If sin is not imputed, sin's removed from the record. Well, how can it be? 
Of course, that's the gospel. It's been laid on Jesus. This one that is received by faith alone. That we take God at His word. That He's imputed our sin to Christ. He's not imputed it to me. And He's imputed, He's reckoned Christ's righteousness as mine. Paul looks at this Jewish objector who wants to stand up, as it were, and make a little stir in the synagogue and put down this preacher Paul. He hears justification by faith alone, says, well, that's something new. And he says, is it? What does the Old Testament say? Look at the two heroes that you would glory in, Abraham and David. This doctrine of free justification is written all over their stories. You don't understand your own law. You've let your own self-righteousness blind you from seeing this glorious gospel in the Old Testament. It isn't anything new at all. And when you look at Abraham's story, you look at David's story, you look at the Spirit's record of their stories, what do we see? Uncircumcised, ungodly, and uncondemned. It's the same gospel. Let's bow our heads together. Lord, we come today asking that You would take away any veils from our eyes in the reading of the Old Testament Scriptures. Lord, take away any veil in our eyes from reading the New Testament Scriptures. For just as Israel was able to warp and twist the message in the olden days, So in the church age, New Testament scriptures have been warped and twisted as well. Lord, you told us as much of those that would twist the scriptures to their own destruction. But it's written large, it's written plain. You justify the ungodly. Those that are believers in Jesus. So Lord, take us today again marveling at the wonders of your grace. We pray it in Jesus' worthy name. Amen.